From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now here's Lyndall Cooley with this week's message. It's good to be back with you. I want to just take a moment here and introduce someone to you. I had every intention of being in the pulpit this week, so I'll be back next week and we'll continue on worship. Uh, But we have someone that's very important to our church here today, and I want you to hear from him. Um, He's actually another one of our church uh, executive board members, which means he can fire me. So if you ever have problems with me, go to him. Or Don that was here last week. Uh, Just an opportunity. It's very important to me for you to know who these people are so that they're familiar to you. Uh, Some years ago, I'll try to make this as brief as possible because I want Enrique to be able to preach what the Lord's given him. I met Enrique Bremer at Brownsville Revival and Claudio Friesen from uh, Argentina, Buenos Aires, Argentina was a regular at Brownsville Revival. He has a pretty large church there, doesn't he, Enrique? Several thousand. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of Claudio Friedson and the great outpouring in Argentina many, many years ago. And he was a part of that. And uh, he become, he would come up to Brownsville Revival occasionally after Steve Hill had gone to Dallas in 2000. He would speak fairly regularly. And he brought this guy named Enrique Bremer, and uh, Enrique would uh, translate for him. And it was wonderful times in the Lord. Well, Enrique and I struck up a friendship, and he kept asking me to come to Mexico. And I said, I don't want to go to Mexico. (laughs) Not because I'm prejudiced or anything, I just don't want to go. I never wanted to go to Mexico. And... um, uh, and when Enrique decides you're going to do something, and his wife, his wife is the real, real, she's the power behind everything. And when Tita decides you're going, you're going. And so Larry and I, at that point, were just contemplating this church. And I think 2002, finally, he convinced me to go. And uh, I wasn't prepared for what was going to happen. I'm going to scare some of y'all's theology here in a moment, and that's okay. I wasn't prepared. Um, I remember Enrique picking me up at the airport, and Larry was with me in Chihuahua, the state of Chihuahua, the city of Chihuahua, and picked us up and drove us into the desert about two and a half hours. And it looked like a Clint Eastwood Western. It was high desert, and uh, as a matter of fact, it was so dry I saw actual tumbleweeds going across the highway. I thought, man, this is dry. And just in making conversation, uh, I said, Enrique, does it ever rain here? He said, yes, it usually rains. We're in a drought and have been in a drought since 1991. And if it rains at all, it's going to rain in August. And this was May, I believe. And don't accept the Holy Spirit. I don't know why I asked that question. 
just making conversation. So we got to the next day. I got in my hotel that night, got rest, and uh, got up the next morning. We started the first session. And, uh, of course, at breakfast, I said, Enrique, there are nine sessions, morning, noon, and night for three days. Two days, rather, six, six sessions. I'm being evangelistic, Enrique. Six, right, six. And I said, so who are the other speakers? He goes, there aren't any. You're the speaker. And I went, I don't know if I have enough to say for six times. I mean, really? And uh, I remember we started the first session, a lot of pastors there, a lot of leaders, Enrique and his wife and their church have influence over many churches and many ministries and schools and all that in Mexico. And I was speaking and I stopped in the middle of my message, my teaching, and I said, I believe God is going to come to Mexico in a supernatural way. And it's like I cued sound effects. It thundered. I said, way, and it went. And I thought, immediately came to mind that Enrique had told me it doesn't rain in May. Then it started torrentially raining. And I remember, now this is my memory, I remember that a lot of the ministers and people ran outside because it was such a rare thing to see rain in May and they had been in a drought. Eventually by the afternoon they had to come in and tell everybody to move their cars because it was a cobblestone street and they were starting to float down the street. It rained that hard. And... uh That was the beginning. Come on up, Enrique. You can verify this and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to be in it. Would you all welcome Enrique Bremer? This is your mic anyway. So so we had had those, those meetings that morning, and then we got to church that night, and it had dried up a little bit. A little bit. A little bit, and the house was full. I don't know how many of that building seats, but it was full. It was about 1,500 people there. You couldn't, you couldn't put another toothpick in the place. We, and, and the worship, his worship team was leading worship, of course, in Spanish. And I walked in the back of the room, and I could feel the glory of the Lord in waves coming off the stage, just, just waves of glory. And I believe it was that night that you turned the service to me. And uh, I took the mic. And uh, that's when the lady began to intercede. I want to show her to you. You're going to show her to me? I've got a little video of her. Okay. Well, this lady starts interceding, followed by, how long did we go? About an hour? It it was like a spark in a haystack. And for an hour, 1,500 people could not stop praying at the top of their voice. We could not. We weren't trying to pray. We were taken up by prayer. And there's a, there's a if, if the guys could show the, the little video, if it actually worked, that's her. Her name is Carmelita. And she was... She was the spark. And look at that face. 
Has that got Jesus all over it yeah. or what? I'm telling you, I heard her little voice over in this side. That's right. And she was praying in tongues. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Spanish. It was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Taromara. And no, it was not Taromara. It was, it was Holy Ghost. And that spirit of intercession hit the whole place. And then shortly after that, we got our composure and we decided that we would move on. And I started to speak. And then simultaneously, everybody hit the ground again, including Enrique and the band. I know y'all don't believe in this, but, you know, you're in the wrong church to not believe in this stuff. They all hit the ground simultaneously, and I was shocked. 1,500 people, plus the whole band, in terror, laying on the floor. And I thought, and I looked at Enrique, he was at my feet. And I go, what is going on? He said, you didn't feel it? I said, I felt nothing. That's me. The Holy Ghost can be blowing up all over the place, and I'm in the other room. I just didn't feel a thing. He said, the building shook. I said, it did not shake. He said, it shook. I said, Enrique, it did not shake. I'm standing here. And he said, you tell them that. (laughs) And signs and wonders, and signs that make you wonder, happened for the next few days, including uh, one... What's that? Shall I tell them? Tell them. Um, the place shook this way. It shook this way. But we're not in a seismic zone. We, we, it doesn't, we don't get earthquakes where I live. And, um, and then the second night, and this was just, it, there's really no way to describe it. Um, all of a sudden, people, say, people start shouting, why are you throwing stones at me? And... There was hail falling inside a brand new building. We had inaugurated that building in 1999. This was 2002, so it was a brand new building. And uh, all the rows of the back, uh, we had Samsonite chairs, you know, the ones that are plastic and they have kind of like a, um, a little area for your, you know, to kind of fit into and they were all full of water. And I'm talking dozens and dozens of chairs all the way across the auditorium. And uh, we had a heat wave come through the worship team, especially uh, this uh, gentleman, uh, an American from Mexico City, our guitar player, Grady Pope. Yep. And he was like in a volcano. He was on fire. And, and then he's about to faint from the heat and nobody else is experiencing this the way he is. And then all of a sudden, you know, he sees my wife come and put up a fan in front of him to cool him off. And so later he goes to her and thanks her for the fan. Uh, she said, uh, I didn't bring you any fan. There, there's no fans anywhere around here to bring. So we had all the phenomena that you see in the book of Revelation happening in our auditorium those two days. And I didn't even want to go. Now, I know some of y'all need to shut your mouth because you probably grew up in a church where none of this was believed in. But I'm just telling you, as a pastor, if you believe I'm a liar, then leave the church. I'm telling you the truth. This is not a foolish man either. I'm telling you supernatural happenings in those meetings. And someone said, what was the point of them? Well, let me tell you the point of them. It wasn't too much longer. Well, actually, we started doing a meeting a month all over Mexico. 
and packing out buildings and the glory of the Lord coming and changing lives. The thing about these meetings is that this particular meeting was just for pastors just and for worship pastors. leaders. We did not allow anybody else in during the day sessions. We'd open it up at night to have anybody and everybody from the church come, but not in the morning. And so all these pastors began asking me, please come and do this in my city. Because we had pastors from over half of the country. And so I was up here, I was up in Brownsville the next week with Claudio. Yes. And after that weekend, uh, Lyndall opens up his laptop and to, to his calendar app and says, when do you want me in Mexico? I said, here, 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 and here. And so we began going all over Mexico, gathering worship leaders. And like I said, it was only people that were part of worship teams. So the next one we went to, we had 700 worship leaders and pastors from every line of denomination that you could think of. And God fell all over. That was when Marco Barrientos was there. Yes. And God just basically slaughtered him. As a matter of fact, a meeting that happened in Puebla. How many thousand people there were there? There was 1,200 worship leaders and pastors yeah. in Puebla, including Brother Wayne Myers, who's like the apostle to Mexico. He's 100 years old right now. And uh, uh, an incredible man of God. And, uh, and by the way, somebody who really doesn't care for worship leaders. Yeah. Yeah. With good reason, I'm sure. In that particular meeting in Puebla, I met a young man named Klaus Kuhn. Now, let me connect some. Somebody says, why would God visit? It wasn't as supernatural in the other meetings. It was that initial three-day or two-day meeting where so many happenings happened. It was supernatural, supernatural, and it literally signs that make you wonder. Because yeah. you don't even know what this is about, except you read the Bible and you see these things and you go, do these things happen today? I didn't even know what to think about it. And I'd come in from Brownsville Revival. And I'm seeing these things. And I go, God, you're doing something for some reason. There's something you're up to. Out of those meetings in Puebla, we had a meeting. And I met Klaus Kuhn, who I didn't know was a worship leader. And I rode back from the, the church to the hotel and he got off at his floor on the hotel, and I followed him. And I said, Klaus, I don't, I, I really, he told me he was a home builder. He didn't tell me he was a worship leader. Mm -hmm. And I said, Klaus, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but uh, I see music notes all around you, and I think you're a musician. And I said, I don't know why you're building houses, but you're not going to do that all the time. There's going to break. In about 60 days, you're going to lead a movement of young people in worship in 60 days. And the minute I said 60 days, I thought, oh. you stupid nut, what did you say that for? I walked to my room. Would you believe in 60 days, I get a call from Klaus, and he said, they've asked me to be... Well, before, you say that, before you say that, the next day, in the meeting, 1,200 worship leaders, and Lindell prophecies to, to, to uh, Klaus... And says, God is going to put you in the wellspring to the nations. I don't remember if you, if you remember, remember that. that. And he didn't know where he was from or what he was doing. And then now tell him what happened. Well, then, then he becomes the music director and worship the head director of all worship at Christ for the nations. Yeah. In exactly 60 days. Yeah. They auditioned people for the worship team. And a young lady named Carrie Job. 
auditioned to be in the worship team. And Rick Pino auditioned to be in the worship team. Yeah. A lady, Klaus sent me a song. And he said, uh, they don't let me record any songs that aren't written by alumni. But I want to send this song to you and I want you to hear it and tell me what you think. I listened to the song and I called him back and I said, the church will sing this song until they see Jesus. Who's the writer? He put me in touch with the writer. She was a mother of several children living in McKinney, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to publish this song. She said, why? I said, to protect it. And when we find the right place to deposit it, we'll release it. But until then, it needs to be protected. There's a recording of it with Carrie Job. It's called Glorious, and the song is Revelation Song. Okay? And when, when we found the right depository, I didn't make a dime off the song. We gave it all the rights away. But that's the kind of stuff God did. And I'll shut up because I want you to preach. It culminated. I'm cutting through a lot. It culminated in a meeting. The first one was in Lyon, I think. Teenagers, young adults. How many did we have? It was on a field. The first year we had 7,000 of them out there. But you have to understand that that year, central Mexico flooded. And the main highway, the main, like... I-95 or US-1 or whatever, it was underwater, literally. There was a lake over it. And people had to find alternate ways to get to the place of this camp meeting. And for three days, we had... I mean, the cities all around us were flooded. Irapuato was flooded. Guanajuato was flooded. Everything was flooded. And all we had was cloud cover, but not a drop of rain. Remember that? Yeah. And interestingly, this is just a little side note uh, for pastors... Because sometimes they mess up too. The pastor that was helping me set this up, he figured he'd make a buck. And so he bought $5,000 of insect repellent. And, uh, and, you know, when we first went there to set up, we realized, oh my God, you know, he's going to need about $10,000 because so many mosquitoes. And when the people arrived, the wind of God came. And there wasn't even a fly in the place. He didn't sell one can. <laughs> We culminated those. We did that a couple of years in a row of just fields full of thousands of teenagers worshiping the Lord. The second year it did rain, I remember. And I remember the kids standing in the rain and I was leading a worship set. And I thought, well, fully on this. So I just kicked my shoes off and just jumped off the stage and got in the mud with everybody. I got pictures of it. And we worshiped. And after that terrible persecution came to Mexico where the cartels began to slaughter people and murder. Many people in your church were shot down and murdered. God sent the wind of the spirit to solidify the church and to move in the power that he's capable of in the country of Mexico right before trouble came. So I, I know that's a weird introduction to my friend, but this man is a solid man of God and oversees schools and churches, and, and him and his wife are very respected, and they are far from weirdos. Matter of fact, we were all shook never by know. what God did. But I want you just to welcome him and receive his ministry. Come on, let's all welcome him today.
I could listen to Linda the rest of the hour. I have no problem with that. Um, I could tell you stories, but because we've been through amazing things uh, in the move of God. I've been a Christian now for 43 years. I gave my life to the Lord in Tallahassee, Florida. I was stoned out of my mind. Had long hair back then. Don't have much now. Hope I get it back in the resurrection. <laughs> and, uh, and the Lord broke through and, and saved me. And called me back to Mexico. Because I was born in Mexico. Even though it's pretty obvious I grew up in the States. And um, because I needed to share this message... Uh, because I had been found by Jesus Christ and he had totally changed my life and I needed to tell everybody I knew because they were all good people and they all went to church and none of them knew that Jesus was real. And so I had to go back and tell them. So I packed, I graduated from FSU, I packed my VW with Bibles and I drove and drove and drove and drove till I got home and um, I thought I was going to be there for a few months share with my family. I've been there for 40 some odd years now. And um, and God seems to like the place where I live. It's a little out-of-the-way city. You have to drive two hours, two and a half hours from Chihuahua to get there. And uh, Linda was scared, you see, because we were driving at night, you know. And this is a narrow highway. and uh, uh, But we brought him home safe and sound. Here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit moves and touches somebody... That's not the end all. That's not the objective. There are outflows from revival. And that's what I want to title this conversation, if you will. Outflows of revival. What happens when revival hits, you know? And what happens after it hits? And I love history. I love studying history. I love studying U.S. history. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit to you about that today. But the thing is... When we're in the midst of this, you know, we, we started sharing with young people. I met my future wife, Tita, and uh, she was on fire for God. We only wanted the Lord, and we didn't care. I, I didn't plan on getting married. She didn't plan on getting married. We didn't have time for it. We needed to serve God. There was no time for us to be thinking about other stuff. And uh, anyway, five months later, we're married, and uh, we've been married for 42 years now. We have four children, and uh, the eldest will be turning 40. She'll kill me because I told you. She'll be turning 40 next month. And uh, so uh, we've got nine grandkids, and um, my kids love God, and they serve the Lord. And um, so, but we started working and preaching and doing, and, and you, you do and work and, and teach and counsel and pray and everything. But after a while... Um, you get worn down, you know, you just feel like you lose your edge. And you love the Lord, but it's just hard going, you're plowing. And that's how we felt, you know. And um, and then God steps in. And I, I'm making a real long story, I'm going to try to make it real short. But in 1997, we get these videos of this wacky uh, lady that uh, says, Honey, uh, where are we from? You remember that? 
uh, and it was in Brownsville. And then this girl, you know, sharing her testimony while she shakes. And, and, and as we're watching the video, I forget, Allison Ward, I think was her name. As we're watching the video, a spirit of repentance comes on the whole church. And people begin to weep for days. And I remember I called my pastor, Brother Victor Richards. I said, people have been weeping for a day and a half, two days. What do I do? He says, nothing. Let them weep. God's doing, cleaning them out and whatever. And so we realized there's something really powerful going on. And as soon as we could, we figured out a way to get to Brownsville. That was like in February of of, uh, 1998. And you know, um, because I'm from Mexico. I mean, I speak good English, but I'm a Mexican. And... um, and we Mexicans always have an uncle of a friend of your buddy, you know, that'll get you in. And so we did. We knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody. And so he got us into the VIP line. So we only had to get to church two and a half hours early because we were VIPs. Everybody else had been standing there since 6 a.m. to get into a service that would start at 7 p.m. And it was amazing. So we were there, and the, the day we get in there, now you gotta, you got to understand, my wife, Tita, she has no interest in life except God and the kingdom and shopping. But she figured out how to get God on her side in the shopping part. And so don't you ladies try that, okay? But the thing is, uh, Tita was holy when she was a sinner, you know? I... I don't know how she ever married me because I, I came from the other side of the tracks. And, and she walks into Brownsville and there's such a holiness in the place. And she just crashes to the ground and she tells me, she says, I knew that there was no way that God could forgive me. There was no way that somebody so holy, so pure could possibly accept me because of who I was. And this is the cleanest, most dedicated person that I know in all of my life. And she says, I understood to the depths of my soul why Jesus is necessary. Because there's no way any of us, no matter how good we are, could possibly have access to the Holy of Holies. Well, that started a whole history of a connection between the Brownsville Revival and our city. Because Brownsville Revival came into Mexico through our little town. One little town to another. Um, but you don't know in the midst of what's going on, all that God has planned. And this was 1998. I'll backtrack a little bit to give you a bit of, of history about what we were doing. We, we started uh, this small group in a home. You know, there was four of us and a little demon-possessed chihuahua dog. You know, may she be roasting in hell someplace because she made life difficult for me, that little dog. Anyway, um, you don't have to save dogs. I mean, you have to save people, but not dogs. Anyway, the thing is, that little church grew and grew and grew. And all of a sudden, we had all these young families and we've got kids. And I started getting reports of the stuff that their kids are going through in the schools, you know. And I, I don't want to go into detail, but it was terrible. And it was not an option for us as Christians to have our kids there. And, you know, we're having children. And my daughter is now, you know four or five years old, and we began to discover, uh, my wife 
who is a, uh, she's a business administrator. She was in charge of the census in the southern part of our state when she was 21 years old. I mean, she's a mover and a shaker. Trust me. Uh, uh, so all of a sudden she's got a baby and she doesn't know what to do and she's going crazy and she cries out to God and he says, please turn my heart back to this child. And she began, and you know, whenever you pray, oftentimes God will answer you with a question. God's really good about questions. You see that all over the, the, the gospels and, and, and she began to ask God a question that was actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. And she asked him, how does a child learn? You know, what am I supposed to do with this child? Teach me how a child learns. And that literally marked uh, an outflow of God that we didn't know that it was happening. Okay? So anyway, we've got our kids. Our daughter Rebecca is in kindergarten in, in a public school. And the teacher was lovely, but... We just saw that, you know, this is so contrary to everything we believe. We, we either homeschool or we start a school. And in 1989, we started a school. So, uh, you know, our kids are in there and God does all kinds of wonderful things. And, and we've got this K through third grade. And then it just grows on until it gets to 12th grade. And in 1998, when we came to Pensacola and something opened up in the spirit, God opened something up in the natural and this is really important for me to share with you because I've seen revivals go to waste again and again. And people just get absolutely blasted in revival and there was nothing else. You know, it was just a flame and it was wonderful and it shone, but that was all there was. And I've come to realize in 40 years of reading scripture that when God comes, he comes with a purpose. You know, when Jesus came, he came with a purpose, not just to shine, but to actually get something impossible done. And God was setting this up in our own case. And um, you would never believe the form of it. And you're going to have to bear with me till the end of my talk to get the, the notion of what this is all about. But the thing is, in that year, this um, a missionary and his partner from South America, they come up to our city. They'd asked us for us to host a, a, a conference on education, on Christian education. And it was a wonderful conference. Everything was a success. And then they come into my office after the conference and said, we want to give you, we want to we send you $100,000 worth of books that you would distribute them in Mexico. We were already using those books in our school because they were Christian books and we were hungry for, you know, Christian education. We didn't want other kinds of stuff. And uh and so anyway, long story short, I accepted and we started doing this, but this was just a side thing that we did to serve the churches that had schools that we knew. And uh so this goes on for some years. Then Lyndall shows up. Now, give you a little bit of background on Lyndall. My wife and I, well, my wife is a worshiper. Like I said, she, if the Holy Spirit's there, she's happy. If not, she and everybody else is miserable because, you know, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy, right? That's kind of the way it works. And she was seeking God desperately. And she had an encounter with worship, with, with the presence of God, by herself listening to some old hymns. 
So it began to flow in church. And I remember when we began to experience it. I remember the Sunday when it fell on us. And we didn't have any decent musicians. To this day, we don't have anybody that can read a note. You know, uh, everybody just played by ear. and Because we're a little out of the way town with no music teachers and so on and so forth. And so worship just took over our church. I mean, it was incredible. It could go on literally for hours. And our auditorium, like I said, will seat about 1,500 people. And we're right on the main avenue. And all of a sudden, people would come in off the street and say, what, what is this place? Because we didn't have any sign outside. And, and what, what do you all do here? And I remember we had a nun come in, in full nun dress, you know. And, uh, and she said, I heard something and it reminded me of, of when I got when I gave my life to the Lord and, and she comes in and, and God fills her, heals her. She had two really bad knees and then gets really, really drunk in the Holy Spirit. And then we had to kind of bodily carry her to her convent. And uh, so that didn't give us a good reputation. Um, but this was just happening on and on. I mean, uh, people... non-believers coming in and just getting totally shocked by this. I remember one, this this, uh, employee of a, well, this this gentleman in our church who was an employee of the electric company uh, invited some friends and one of them was a young woman and she wasn't living right. She was was a mess. And she comes and after a few minutes she starts to leave and he runs after her and and all of a sudden she falls on her face. Now this is an outright I'm not a Christian, don't care about any of this stuff. And she's on her face and she can't get up. And, you know, and so for us that was normal, you know, having bodies strewn all over the place, that was just, you know, that was normal church, right? And uh, so after about half an hour or more, she gets up as best she can and she starts walking and then running out the door and he runs after her and he says, where are you going? She says, whatever's there is real. Whatever's there is real. And she ran for her life. Because, you know, in Scripture, if you don't walk with God, you walk from God. If you don't run to God, you run from God. It's not, he's not Santa Claus, you know. Uh, he's a consuming fire. And if you love him, that consuming fire is a fire of love. And it will absolutely transform your life. But if you don't, you better be afraid of that fire. Because that fire will burn. And she... Figured, this is not where I want to be. And anyway, we saw this happening all the time. But in the midst of it, God was doing some other stuff. So this is God preparing us. So anyway, we badger Lyndall. I mean, I badgered Lyndall for weeks on end. And he gave me every excuse that he could, you know. And uh, finally, he just couldn't say no anymore. And he uh, decided, he come, he gets his tickets, flies to Mexico... And we have this awesome, incredible two, two days of glory. Had never happened before like that. Has never happened since exactly like that. Now we've seen amazing things. But God doesn't, is, he's not a copycat. He doesn't just do the same thing again and again and again. Well the thing is that this kicked off two things in two outflows. One was worship. We went all over the country, and those trips, those conferences, literally changed the face of worship in Mexico. 
It changed how Mexico worships. It changed what we sang. It changed the whole spirit of the thing. You know, it totally transformed the churches because this was our heart. What we wanted to do is get the people in worship connected with God and the pastors connected with God and then get them connected with each other and then let God flow in the midst of our churches, you know. And this is what began to happen. And this one of the outflows was these massive youth meetings, uh, first on the field, then in Mexico's biggest covered auditorium called the Palacio de los Deportes. And, uh, you know, uh, 16,000 kids two solid days from nine to nine and I remember standing there looking at this crowd of young people and I had a most unholy thought because I watched and watched because that's what you know I'm a pastor I get paid to watch you right that's what I do I, you know, I don't stand up here because I'm pretty. I stand up here so I can look at your face and your expression and see where you're at and then I can do something about it during the week so I was just watching for hours and then this thought comes in when do they go to the bathroom? Because nobody moved and when you have 16,000 people in a place there's people moving all the time and nobody moved because the place was filled with Jesus. And so uh, 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 there's a dear brother his name Mauricio Reyes who is a missionary in Turkey and Lebanon right now because God called him there. At that event. And uh, we were there with him last year at the House of Prayer in Pergamum, Turkey. And it was the first Christian service, first Christian Sunday service in Pergamum in probably about 1500 years. Amazing, amazing. Uh, people literally uh, were marked and sent off to serve God in all manner of places because of these moments. But at the same time, Underneath, something else was happening. We started another school, a little school. I, I want you to show me the pictures of the slums. There's about two of them um, in, in, a, in a hard part. No, the, keep going. It's going to be about 10 pictures forward. About 10, 10 12 pictures forward. Oh, keep going. There you go. In this part of town. Show me the next one, if you will. In that little house... We started a school. It was just kindergarten. But you know, kindergarten grows because kids grow. And then you had to go first grade and second grade. And so if you'll keep going, then we, we had to find... This is the kind of houses that those kids lived in. And typically in that part of town, if you saw the whole uh, panorama there, you would see these houses that they're like that inside and outside. And these kids oftentimes will have no dad and won't know who their dad is. And won't know who the dad of the other brothers is. Because it's just a mess. And we, we just knew we had to do something for them. So if, if you'll go back to that picture. We, so we rent this little house. We start a school. And start teaching them the love of God. Obviously we didn't have. Uh, we, we couldn't charge them any uh, significant amount of money. Even though it's a you know, little private school. And, and it, uh, it totally changed their lives. And I'm going to come back to that at the end because I'm going to challenge you to do something specific about it. Okay? But then we're up in the mountains. This is about a three-hour drive away from where we live, most of it on dirt road. And this is the church in Tecorici. And the Holy Spirit fell on that place. But this is where I'm saying I've seen revivals go to waste. 
And these people probably experience the Holy Spirit like very few people ever have. Because they're not all tied up with the entertainment and the things that we, that fill our lives. You know, this is, there's no electricity there. There is, um, um, no civilization. They're very, very poor. And, um, and then the Lord led us to open up a school for them. And we find out that many of these are 15, 16 year olds and they've been to school, the official school, the government school all their life. And they don't know how to write their own name, you know, and, uh, and these people have experienced God, but, but they need something to, f- to grow out of that experience. So we began to teach them. And uh, we began to build this school. And actually that video of Carmelita was her thanking us for building them a school to teach them. So we, uh, right now we've got a couple, a missionary couple living there. It gets really cold. There might be a picture there of that church in the midst of the snow. And uh, yeah, there it is. That's wintertime. And so, uh, and they're from southern Mexico. And they love it there. Because they're, they're teaching these people. And they're pastoring the church. And, um, and the thing is, it's changing their life. Now, let me give you some Bible on this. Yeah, well... I got, I had to borrow an English Bible because my Bible is in Spanish. It says Santa Biblia. Um, I don't think you'd, they asked me if I could give them some notes. I said, sure, but they're all in Spanish. So that won't do you a whole lot of good. So let me read to you from Matthew, okay? Um, Matthew 11, one of my favorite passages of scripture. 1125, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And I began to think, if God reveals his mysteries to little children, would that mean that children are better learners than adults? And would that also mean that God knows how to reach a child's mind and heart and pour some of the stuff into his or her life? You know, and we realized, you know, oh my God, we've, we've been missing it all along. Let, let me just, uh, I, I know this might not seem like a revival talk, but trust me, this is what happens. This is what's happened throughout history when revival has hit then everything has changed in every other sphere of life. The U.S. is the prime example. If you go back over the history of the U.S., you go back to the Mayflower Compact, you go back to these uh, English merchant families that were coming from Holland to set up a new nation in this basically northern jungle that was, you know, this wooded jungle that was the, uh, the U.S., And they wanted to do something and set something up that would glorify the Lord. A a civilization that would glorify God. And then you go further, and we were talking about it yesterday, Larry and I, uh, the revivals in the early 1800s. 
And you've got the Cambridge Revival not far from here. And it just, you had about 40, 50 years of revival movements, which known as the Second Great Awakening. But out of that, you have the whole westward movement of people in the U.S. to what is now the Midwest and even the West. And it wasn't cowboys and it wasn't shoot 'em ups It was holy people that loved their Bible and loved God. That was the westward expansion of the U.S. And, and there was this, this Frenchman who comes to the U.S. in 1831... Uh, to study the U.S. He and, and his buddy came to study this nation that was the first democracy and that was functioning. They're from France where their revolution was a total failure. And so he comes and he's here for nine months and he travels extensively through the U.S. and he writes this book called Democracy in America. If any of you have ever read it, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never read it, you need to read it. That's a big, fat, not easy to read book, okay? But he writes in the midst of this. Now, he was not a believer, but he was honest. And he says, I've seen the members of the prosperous provinces of the eastern seaboard gather together their funds to send ministers to the western provinces like Tennessee. To set up schools and churches. Schools and churches. Schools and churches. All the westward movement was setting up churches and schools. And I, I want to read to you. And I've got his quote here someplace. So if you'll bear with me for just a second. I will get this out. And read it to you. He says, I've, been, I've seen North Americans associate to send ministers to the new states in the West and to fund or to establish schools and churches. They feared that Christianity would be lost in the midst of the woods and that the people that would rise up would not be as free as those from whence they'd come. I found rich inhabitants of New England abandoning the land of their birth with the object of going to the edges of the Missouri or the plains of Illinois the roots and foundations of Christianity and freedom. And then he goes on. I'll skip a little bit of this. And it says this. All of the North American states are united uh, one with the other, they would say. And if the states of the West were to fall into anarchy or would suffer the yoke of despotism, then the democratic institutions that blossom in the shores of the Atlantic would be in great danger. Therefore, we are very much interested that these new states be Christian so that they may let us be free. James Madison wrote about the U.S. Constitution. This Constitution is only apt for a religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. The only way this works is if people fear God, if they love his word, if they walk according to the truth. And so, but the thing is this. You've got these amazing revivals and out of them come these reform movements. But they're not, uh, you know, uh, people per, uh, doing silly things on the streets. They're people giving their life to help other people walk with the Lord in their entire being. Not just in a meeting. Now, trust me. 
I am charismatic Pentecostal. Uh, actually, we call us charismaniacs. You know, we're a little bit over the edge. I can roll with the best of them. You know, we've uh, uh, you know we've had people fall forward, backwards, sideways. If you won't fall, I'll knock you down. If you don't want, if you're afraid of being knocked down, lie down. I'll pray for you on the floor. Whatever. We love God. We love the Holy Spirit. We've seen amazing things, powerful things, uh, healings. You know, my kids, myself, my wife, I just got over cancer. I'm totally healed, totally, completely healed last year. And um, I feel better than I have in decades. Um, I'm 65, but people, uh, you know, I I feel like I'm about 25. Um, And the thing is this... um, We love everything that we see here. There is no way that you can be a Christian and eliminate the supernatural aspect of this glorious book. You can't. You'd have to rip out most of the pages. You know, If you want to reduce this to doctrine or to behavior, well, you're in the wrong religion because this is full of God just interrupting humanity with his presence and his power and doing things that astound people all the time. And we absolutely love that. But, the way our take on it is this. We preach the kingdom. We practice the supernatural. In other words, we're not trying to get people hyped up. We believe that if the kingdom is preached, God will make himself present and then he'll take care of the rest, right? We believe that. But the thing is, it has to go beyond the incredible meeting. And if you want an incredible meeting, you come to my church. Well, you also come to Grace. Grace has got awesome worship, you know. But if you want to have an incredible, awesome meeting that will just, you know, just set you on fire, you come to our church. But meetings are not enough. It's what happens after. You know, it's what, what happens the rest of the week. And I want to, this is why I mentioned this thing about schools. Because we're in 1998. We come to Pensacola, changes our life, you know. We, in 2002, Lindell comes, changes our life. And what is the outflow of that? Schools. For little boys and girls that have no choice and no chance and no opportunity to have any kind of a decent life. That they don't know who their dad is. Their mother works nights, so you don't even ask what she works at. And they live in a horrible place and they have no future. And they're not starving because Mexico's not that poor. People eat. Hallelujah. Yes, we do. And it's so good. <laughs> you know, anytime we offer somebody to come and work with us, we tell them, look, the pay is terrible, but the food is awesome. It really is. You'll never get good Mexican food here in the States. Um, you have to come to Mexico for that. Amen. Lyndall knows it. Larry knows it. Now, um, let me tell you about these kids and what we do with them and, and why we do this. You see, in, in my country, politics is everything. So everything's political. If you have a farm, it's all politics. If they distribute the land amongst the poor, it's all politics. They don't care if it produces anything. If you have schools, it's about people control and getting out the vote and so on and so forth. So they don't care what they teach. And schools are a mess and they're ugly. Ugly as sin. And then you put little children, 30, 40, 50, to a classroom with a teacher who feels he's a failure because he's a teacher. 
He wanted to be a doctor, but he couldn't get in. He wanted to be an engineer. He couldn't get in. So he had to be a teacher because he didn't have the money to do to study something else. And so he hates what he does. And he's got this mass of kids and he has no resources and he doesn't care about the job. And that's education in my country. And the thing is this. When Jesus spoke the uh, parable of the sower, um, let me get to it. He said the following when he interprets the parable of the sower. I'm reading Matthew 13, 18. It says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, says the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Now when you have a population, and I'm talking about most of Latin America, that has been trained into stupidity. That has been trained not to think, not to ask, not to ever analyze anything. Just to parrot whatever the teacher wants you to say. That's education. Who goes to school knowing he will be humiliated by his buddies and humiliated by his teacher. And so he hates school and would never go to school if allowed not to go. And by the time he leaves, let's say middle school or our equivalent of it, he can read a couple of things, maybe a label, but he will never, ever, ever read a book. And if he reads one, let's say he gets saved and he starts reading the Bible, he won't understand 90% of it. How do you get the kingdom into people whose brains and minds have been completely shut down by the way they've been raised? Because you see, in, in our culture, you educate through humiliation. You humiliate a child before his buddies, before his brothers and sisters. You humiliate a child to get him to work, to get him to do. Obviously, it doesn't work. You know, it's a disaster. And then you do that at home and you do that at school and you end up with cartels. You end up with people that literally cannot read a paragraph, much less write it. And so they have no uh, understanding of scripture. They have no understanding. They have no tools to live with, you know. I've ministered to young people. I remember one. He's dead now. He was shot. Two bullets right here. He had been shot. Had about four bullets. Five bullets in his body. And uh, a lovely member of our church. Actually the founding member of our church. Her name is Hattie. And um, she goes to the hospitals every Monday. And preaches to anything and everything that will allow her. And trust me. You don't say no to Hattie. Okay. And, uh, and she finds this kid dying in a wheelchair and she shares the gospel with him and she gets somehow gets permission to take him to church the next Sunday. And I mean, he's, he's just a mass of bandages, you know, the thing is God saves his life and he gets saved and it takes him a few months before he finally figures out that what he did in life was actually bad and sin. Because that's how they're indoctrinated. You know, this is just my job. This is what I do. Anyway. Months down the road, he falls away from the Lord. He got angry with his wife. They fought and they just decided to give everything up. And, uh, and he goes back to the business. And then at some point, one of our young men finds him 
and speaks to his heart and gets him back with the Lord. But he had already done the wrong thing for the wrong people. And he knew that he was singled out for death. And when that happens in Mexico, these guys, when they're told, okay, this is your day, they'll go and sit on the sidewalk and wait for their executioner to come and kill them. And you say, why do they do that? Because if they don't, they'll kill their entire family. But before all that happened, he told me, I'm the very last one, the very last survivor of my middle school. And then we found him with two bullet holes right here. That was the end of his life. He's with the Lord, but this is the future for so many of them. They can't read their own language, much less write it. They have no future, no disciplines, no good habits of any kind. And I'm, you know, just so happy with my godly experience. But the thing is, everything that God does bears fruit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is not just that I'm struggling to be patient, you know. Just think about it for a second. Think about what fruit is, okay? You're, you're a pear tree. I don't know if you've got pear trees here, but you're a pear tree. You will not eat a single one of your pears. You produce pears for somebody else to eat. That's what fruit is. So fruit is something that God produces through you for the benefit of somebody else. So when revival becomes a self-centered uh, experience that you just go on and on having more and more experiences, that is not revival. Because when revival comes, true revival comes, fruit comes from it. And what's that fruit? You become food for other people. You become nourishment and light and hope for other people. And this is what's happened to us. And so we began to open up schools here and there and everywhere so that we could help people come out of that kind of a life. Now, you go back to that picture in that brick house and those children looking out or that child looking out with a man who may or may not be his dad. And when we set that school up, I remember the first day, you know, we moved from the little house to the school. Uh, and it, if you can now show the school itself, it's the kind of a terracotta colored one. No, the, 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 the bigger one. Um, that's the little house that we had rented. No, no. Well, you'll find it. Uh, anyway, you'll know when you see it. The thing is, we decided, uh, I, I remember we get there, uh, school opens at 8 the kids had been waiting outside since 7.20. They want to be there on Saturdays. It's the prettiest place in their life. And not just physically, but in the atmosphere, in the way they're treated. Because all of their teachers are committed Christians, people that love the Lord and love these kids. That's the school. And, uh, and so we decided that we were going to build this school. And if you'll leave the picture there... In Mexico, I don't know how it is here, but if you go to a poor person's wedding, you take, you know, a um, simple gift. But if you go to a rich person's wedding, well, you've got to take an expensive gift, you know. I mean, otherwise, you know, you'd, you'd make a fool of yourself, right? The Lord said, take the rich gift. Take the expensive gift 
to the poor wedding. So this school has better facilities than our good school, than our good school. The one that kids pay to be in, this has better everything. Because God told us, do the better job and the better facilities for the poor kids that cannot pay you. And then another thing. In our school, we teach English. We teach English every day. uh, And we know how to teach English to get you to actually speak it. You know, which is not an easy thing. And uh, we do that because it will change a person's life. In any country outside of the U.S., if you speak English, I mean, outside of the U.S., Canada, and England, right? But if you speak English, it's like having a college degree. You have a future. And so we decided we're going to give these kids the exact same level of English that we're giving the other ones. And you know what happened from that? That little girl, that little boy in that ugly house in that, you know, shanty town have a hard life. Mom goes out all night, doesn't, we don't know what she does. We don't want to ask, you know, the two, three brothers that I have, they're not full brothers. Life is really hard, not just because of the poverty, but because of the aggressive nature of their life, you know, the harsh nature of their life. Uh, I've seen kids beaten with rebars. Uh, You can't imagine the welts. Okay, you can't imagine a kid crying after he was beaten with rebars. So, and then we teach them English. And these kids, it doesn't change the place they live. It doesn't change the poverty and the harshness of their life. But they know that one day they're going to get out because they speak English. And it totally changes their outlook on life. Now they don't want to be drug dealers. Now they don't want to be hired guns. Now they don't want to be maids. Now they want to be pastors and teachers and doctors and all these other things because they speak English and their poverty, that's just temporary. They're going to get out of that. And so it changes people. So, well, you know, we're happy with what we're doing. You know, we've got our schools and uh, we've got three. One, the big one in our church and then the second one, which is this one and then the third one, which is up in the mountains with Tarumara Indians. And uh, we got, you know, we're, we're distributing books out to, you know, as many churches and schools as they want. But uh, these are, this is just a little thing that we do. And then the owners of the publishing company, it's called Libros Aguila, it's not a good name. We don't like it. We're changing it. Uh, but anyway, they, um, they, they asked me if I'd come to Mexico City and meet with them. Sure. So I'm in Mexico City. We're at the airport. And they say, you know what? We, we don't want to do this anymore. Uh, we feel that our life is taking another direction. And, uh, you know, we just want to give you uh, the publishing house. And in the year 2016, October of 2016, they gave me the publishing house. Now, of course, you would think, oh, wow, Enrique is really lucky. And uh, man, he must be loaded. You have no idea how much work it takes to bring an old publishing house with neglected books and make it something useful. And so my wife, of course, wanted to kill me, as wives usually do when men take a jump out, you know, into a, uh, into an empty space. And, uh, but she says, okay, you do it. 
I'm, don't ask me to get involved. You do it. If you think that God called you to do it, you do it. But I don't want any part of it. Of course, that's never true. She's, she's always a part of anything that God does. But the thing is, God begins putting together a team. Because the, the, the board of people that met together, uh, friends from different parts of the country, uh, investors and so on, they only gave me one condition. They said, okay, you, this, this will work and this is viable but you cannot be the CEO. You cannot be the chief executive officer of this thing. Uh, you have to have somebody else. And God begins to bring people in through prophecy to work at this company, which now has around 100 employees. And we are educating between twenty and 25,000 young people all over Mexico and Latin America, over 250 schools, over 3,000 homeschoolers. And in a few years, we totally transformed that old material into K through ninth grade with manuals and all manner of things with a digital, um, what do you call it, platform that, to teach the teachers. And we train churches to start schools. And we've helped start over 150 schools in the last four years or so. 150 schools all over Mexico. There's a couple from Lakeland, Florida. Anybody from Florida here? I grew up in Florida, so. Um, anyway, uh, he's American, Don, and his wife is Mexican, Maria Elena. They're a lovely couple. And right now they're living in Oaxaca. And uh, two years ago, they, they felt that God asked them to start schools. So they started 14 schools in one year in the mountains of Oaxaca. And all these little pastors, and there's pictures, there's, I'll show you some pictures towards the end, if you can start showing some of those pictures, uh, of all these uh, schools. One of the pastors has a, f- a school with 400 kids. Oh, go back to that one, go back to that picture. Go back to that one with me and the other guy. You see that guy? His name is Leandro, and everybody calls him El Borrego, and he was the head drug dealer of a town in the mountains before he got saved. He was the big narco boss and then God saves him. And now we've got a little school in his little village where he lives. And it, their lives have totally changed. He now is, uh, uh, he's, you know, he planted opium and, uh, and marijuana. Now he plants potatoes and other stuff like that. And it's not easy. It's a lot more work. It's a lot less money. But he, was ne- he never smiled. He never ever smiled. And this is, this is one of the schoolrooms in, in his little community. As you can see, it's a rather poor place. But things are changing in the lives of those people in specific ways. So what am I saying? The outflow of a revival is a lot of work. It's people giving their lives to a place and to a need that God points out. This is the church in Tecorichi. These are all Tarumara uh, Indian men and women. Women And when the desks are there, you'll see them on the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit because they're very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But we had to do more with them. And, and so it just goes on and on. Well, anyway, 150 plus schools all over the country, all these thousands of kids getting transformed. And, and now we're in the process of starting a university to train teachers up. And God gave me a passage for this. And I'll, uh, I'll read it to you. It's in Matthew 13. So you don't have to flip around your Bible a lot. 
Jesus has just taught all these parables, you know, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven and so on. And then in verse 51, he says to his disciples, have you understood all these things? Now remember, when he explained the parable of the sower, he said, um, the one that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Okay? And so he now asks his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master or a father of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And the Lord spoke to me, says, this is what I want you to produce in that university. Scribes that are taught for the kingdom, trained for the kingdom, that will be like fathers. We live in a fatherless generation. And if you go to Latin America, in my state, the state of Chihuahua, it's the biggest state in Mexico. It's kind of the Texas of Mexico. Same name as a little dog, but um, we're not really that well related. 70% of children that are born in my state are born out of wedlock. Seven, zero. And of the 30% of children that are born to married couples, half of those married couples will divorce within three years. So 85% of children in my state live in fatherless homes. And the Lord spoke to me and said, bring up fathers of a house who bring out of their treasure what is new and what is old, who seek that their students will understand and so they can bear fruit for the kingdom. So, this is why I brought all these books. I want you to see them. This is the stuff that we do, you know, science and, and math and, and language, because in my country, language is not taught. Now, I, I was raised in the States, and so I was taught to do a sentence and a paragraph and, you know, to do all the things you do in, in English. And I have to teach our teachers how to write a good sentence. The teachers, not the students. I have to teach them. I do this every summer, you know. Do a two-day workshop to teach them how to write a simple paragraph. I've spoken with executives. One of them is, uh, his name is Mauricio Cortazar from Mexico City. He's a totally devoted Christian. I mean, loves God with a passion. A leader in his church. And he's an extremely successful businessman. He does the digital invoicing for Home Depot, for all of the hotel chains in Mexico. I mean, this is a big, big shot. And when I explained to him the simple process of writing a paragraph, he almost wept. He says, why didn't anybody ever teach me this? Now, he's got a master's degree, but he doesn't know how to write a paragraph. You say, how's that possible? <laughs> you copy, you buy your papers. You know, There's lots of ways to get through school without learning anything. Trust me, I know. Um, <clears throat> I did it for quite a while. And so we are now embarking on a, on a massive project. We were given 
a piece of land, 16 acres, right on the main drag of the capital city of our state. And the funding to build a university with a kindergarten, grade school, middle school, and high school, and church, and offices, all told about two and a half acres of buildings. And we've been giving the funding for it so that we can begin to bring in young men and women from all over Latin America and train them up to be teachers like the teacher. Let me give you just a couple little ideas that will show you why this is so important. Because you think, oh, you know, any school is good. No, it's not. It's not. Let me explain to you why. First of all, if you want to know how to teach, and I won't go in depth of this because I don't have time for it, you have to read it here. Because the one who made us knows how we learn. That was the original question. You know, how does a child learn? And so that question took us to a second question. Well, how does God teach? And then we began to scour through scripture to figure out how does God teach? And then we realized, oh my God, we've got the teacher of teachers here. What's his name? And if anybody knows how to teach, it's Jesus who can take heavenly truths and bring it down to the minds of very, very simple people and totally change their lives with that. So, so we began finding, okay, what does God do to teach people? And we began to discover things like this. Questions. Questions, questions, questions. You know, Jesus asked questions all the time. As a matter of fact, when he was 12 years old and he was at the temple, the scripture says that the scribes and the, the people there were astounded by his intelligence And by his questions, he was asking them questions, right? And every time somebody would ask him something, he would answer answer with another question. Again and again. So I go to Israel to find some of these, study some of these things. And I find out that in Israel... uh, in when when families get together for their feasts the children have the responsibility they have the duty to stand before all of the adults that's grandparents uncles aunts everybody and ask them questions and then the adults tell them why they believe what they believe and why they do what they do and that's why the jews have never had a generation gap because there's a very solid connection between adults and children, we realize, oh my God, you know, the key to a good formation of a child's heart and mind is his solid, healthy relationship with an adult, with a father, with somebody that knows how to forgive and love without conditioning and will not uh, allow him to go that way or this way, but will lovingly keep him on the right path. And, And so... Uh, we begin to understand stuff like this. If you want to teach somebody, and you, you may find yourself on the wrong side of this uh, description, you have to give the person, first of all, an experience. That's what God does. He takes Paul, whaps him out of his horse, you know, falls on the ground, blinds his eyes, hears the voice, there's the light, gives this whole really incredible experience. No explanation yet. Just an experience, right? That's what revival is. You get this massive experience, but it doesn't end there. The second thing that happens is you begin to express yourself with praise or with questions or with shouts or or with whatever, and then you begin to understand. So what do we do in class? 
Well, the teacher comes in with a large, uh, I don't know, with a rooster, you know. And the rooster makes all kinds of noise and gets loose and is all over the room. And the kids are just freaking out and they're happy about it because they've got this experience. And they're all talking about it, so it's a noisy classroom. And then they finally cage the bird and they settle down and they begin to explain something that the kids are extremely interested in knowing now. Because they've been fighting this rooster for, you know, the last 15 minutes. And it totally changes everything. And this is the way Jesus taught. This is the way God taught. And so we came to a place of, uh, of what it is that we believe that God wants us to do. And I'll um, finish with this. I'll read it out to you. It's in the book of Daniel. Now you have to understand that these boys that we so cherish, Daniel and his three friends, they were eunuchs. Do you understand what a eunuch is? That is somebody who has been mutilated in the worst possible place. Okay? He can never have children. He'll probably never marry because it would be a fraud. They were eunuchs. And yet they ended up governing. They were very young, probably 13, 14 years old. They were in the palace of a strange country with a strange language with an extremely powerful and violent king. And yet they ended up governing the country. And there were just four of them. They weren't even a whole lot. And this is what it says about them. Verse 17, Daniel 1.17 says, As for these youths, these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So they were extremely competent as far as academics and all the uh, abilities that you need in life. But at the same time, they were deeply spiritual. And in verse 20 it says and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus so these four very uh, hurt boys you know ripped away from their families mutilated in their bodies uh, threatened with death at the king's whim, they governed Babylon because God saw to it that they were well educated without losing their deep, deep faith in the living God. We don't think you have to have an either or, that you, you're either in revival or you're smart. You don't, we don't think that you have to just be in an experience and forget everything else. We believe that God made us spirit, soul, and body. And the reviving doesn't just affect an experience. It will literally fill every aspect of us and make us fruitful. So I have, two, I have one question and one challenge, one petition. Because lo and behold, I did not come to the U.S. for money. We actually have money. That's amazing. I've never had that before. That's a certain fruit of revival. We, we've always scraped by, you know, with a p- pinching pennies here. And, you know, I mean, we say in Mexico that we, we pinch the peso so hard that it looks like tinfoil. You know, because uh, there's not a whole lot of money there. Well, amazingly enough, 
We have the money for the whole project. It's an amazing project. It looks gorgeous. Uh, I should show you some pictures at some point. But, so I'm not here for money. I want people. I want people that speak English. Oh, that might be you guys. To give a year or two or more of their life to come to Mexico and change the destiny of a group of children by teaching them really good English. We'll feed you. We'll house you. We will make sure you're in church and uh, holy and on fire. And you'll work. And like I said, the pay is poor, but the food is amazing. I've had kids do this with us for the last 25 years. But now it's not just our church and our schools. Now we need them all over the country. And we've got this fantastic network of churches and schools that are ready for y'all to come and to give of your life there. You see, like I said, um, I got saved and it was fantastic. I mean, I remember walking to, to class in FSU and just laughing myself silly and I had no reason to laugh except I was full of joy, you know. Uh, I, I've seen the very first Sunday I went to church, I saw God change the weather instantly in a moment when I thought this was totally ridiculous and impossible. I've seen all manner of stuff, but it cannot end there. So my question is this. All this wonderful uh, stuff that you've lived, what good is it for anybody else besides you? Does it feed anyone else? Does it nourish anyone else? Because the proof is in the fruit. You can tell a tree, not by how healthy the tree looks, but by the fruit that you can eat from it. And so... We want revival. We're crying out for a revival. I spoke with my wife last night and this morning. We feel that there's a wave coming in Paral. Something's happening in Paral. I know that every time I go away and I leave my wife without you know, any kind of a rain, she will start to spark something because she is that way. And I just have a sense that we are in the beginning of a move again. But I don't want to waste it. I saw so much waste of Holy Spirit the last two times that I've seen revival. And I don't want this one to be wasted because I'm 65. This may be my last wave. I hope it lasts about 30 years. But I don't want it to go to waste. It has to bear fruit. There has to be an outflow. And so I am inviting you to find a place where all of this amazing experience that you've had can be of benefit to somebody else. And I'm offering you one place, which is all of Mexico. And you'll go and you'll work. This will be hard work. You'll prepare class. We'll train you. We'll give you all the materials. It's amazing stuff. We use Cambridge University Press. And we're developing our own material. But we will train you how to do it. And it'll be so much fun. But it will be work. And you will be poorly paid. But you will eat very, very, very well. You'll come back, oh, at least five pounds heavier. And trust me, and happy. And you'll be ruined. You'll never go to Taco Bell again. Um, But this is what it's about. 
You bear fruit for the Lord, and that fruit has to do with you affect other people. There's a zillion ways that that can happen, but this is the outflow. And I believe that when we receive revival in this mindset, revival will not stop. It will not end. It will not burn itself out because there will always be new fuel for that fire. You know, All these people coming in, all these people getting changed and saved and so on. And so um, I have such a debt to you guys, Lyndall. You, you have no idea how much our lives were defined by our experiences both in Brownsville and with you guys. I cannot thank God enough for what you are and what you guys have done. Um, and I, I don't know where I would be if I hadn't been through Brownsville. Because when I got to Brownsville, my axe was so dull. And when I got out of there, I just felt that it had been sharpened up, man. And it could cut through anything. And we are cutting. We are cutting, dude. And we need you to do it with us. So I'd like to pray. And uh, I'd like for you to consider very seriously of giving a year or two or five or the rest of your life to coming and outpouring all of this, these spiritual riches that you've received from the Lord. So Father, I thank you for what you've done through Brownsville, what you've done through Grace Church, what you've done through Lyndall and Amber and Larry in, in our lives. I, I thank you so much. My life would not be the same if they'd kept it to themselves. And I want to ask you, Father, for this wonderful group of people that have experienced you. I, I was watching them, Father, as they worshipped you. I saw so many hearts and hands raised up to you, Father, in holy adoration. And it was a sight to see. It's marvelous. And I want that to flow out to the people that don't have it. I want that to flow out to the children that have no hope. I want that to flow out to the people that are imprisoned and they don't know how to get out. And so I'm asking you, Father, for a mighty move that will shake us and stir us and move us into a place where we will gladly put our lives on the altar that they may be of service to you and of benefit to our fellow man. We are so hungry for you. We desperately need you, Holy Spirit. We need for you to be stronger than we are. We need for you to come on us in such a way that we are conquered, that we are defeated, that we are completely overtaken by you and who you are and how you are. And we are crying out to you. If you're pouring your spirit out in Asbury College and you're pouring your spirit out in parts of Mexico, again, thank you, Father. If you're, if you're doing this, would you do it here with us? And I want to promise you, and I have to rely on your grace for this, but I want to promise you, we won't waste it. We won't let it go to waste. We won't make it just our experience. We will let it flow 
to the ones that need. And so we ask this day, come Holy Spirit. Come and do above and beyond all I can possibly ask or imagine. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.